All right, the teaching text for today is Matthew 5, 21 through 27. This is what it says. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, in, again anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your, your gift there in front of the altar, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray together. Jesus, in this strange circumstance, would you just send your spirit wherever the church is gathered right now in homes and apartments and condos, would you just send your spirit and enable us to hear the words of Jesus and obey the words of Jesus? Give us courage to do the inner work of reflection and, and help us to be eager and desire to obey even when it's difficult. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, three weeks ago, uh, I got a phone call early one Monday morning that a couple in our church had passed away. And a couple minutes after that, I got a, a phone call from a homicide detective from the Tulsa Police Department. And within an hour after that, I found myself downtown at the police station, and I met my friend Heather, uh, who's a Tulsa police officer, and she took me up to uh, kind of the middle of where things were happening, and I found myself in the office with two Tulsa Police Department chaplains who were both pastors. And I was having a conversation with these men, and I told them, you're not going to believe this, but my church is in the middle of a teaching series. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount for eight months. And this happens when a couple in my church is murdered. And the two chaplains just kind of exhale deeply and sit there in a kind of awed disbelief. It's like, wow, this is practical. This is real for us. And Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is not this like vaguely religious pie-in-the-sky kind of talk. It's not an opiate-for-the-masses kind of spirituality. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is eminently practical. Its neglect is consequential. And its opportunity for healing and transformation for us as the people who are trying to follow in the way of Jesus is monumental. It contains for us the possibility and the offer of a renewed and a renewing way to live by following in the way of Jesus and obedience to Jesus who himself is the perfect adherent of his own instruction. Uh, Nina shared last week, I hope you were able to catch this on the podcast, how Jesus says he didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled them in his perfect life. He fulfilled them in his reinterpretation, his interpretation of the law given through Moses. He fulfilled it through the, the, the images and the symbols given in the Old Testament. He's the, the, the one who's, who stomped on the head of the serpent. He's the king of Judah in Genesis 49. He's the new priest. He's the new temple. He's the new sacrifice. He's the new Moses that leads the people of God out of Exodus. He's the new prophet. He fulfills all of his images. Through Jesus, the end of exile has come. Jesus hasn't come to 
abolish, but to fulfill. And here Jesus reinterprets, represents the law that they have seen. You have heard that it was said. But then he offers his own spin on it. But I say to you, and we have this teaching on anger and murder. Uh, in apprentice groups and in Bible studies and Sunday school classes over the years, you've probably heard some version of this statement from church folks. Something that goes like, well, God doesn't expect us to be perfect. Or God doesn't demand perfection. God isn't asking perfection of us. And people typically say that kind of thing when they feel like others are asking too much of them or focusing too much on behavior. And I've, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, people will play the card that Christianity is all about the heart. And I would say that in some ways, I think that that, that response is a bit of a cop-out or it's a bit of a distraction or you might say that it's true-ish. That it's true, uh, you know, in the sense that you don't get into the kingdom of God based on our own perfection. Now, Paul said no one is going to be declared righteous by obedience to the law because none of us can obey the law. It's true in the sense we don't get into the kingdom of God by our perfection. But living in the kingdom of God is a perpetual invitation toward perfection. And Jesus said that explicitly at the end of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect, therefore be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that word perfect may have baggage for many of us, those of us, you know, who are a one on the Enneagram or who hold ourselves to a really high standard and, you know, want to impose or project that high standard from God onto us. But the word perfect here is, is a word in Greek called teleos, teleos which means mature or being fully realized. It's the word that's used by Paul in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. It's the one that's on the wall right there, but you can't see it. He is the one we proclaim, teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone fully mature, fully teleost, fully perfect, arrived uh, in Christ. It's the same word that Paul used in Philippians chapter 3. This is a passage I'm sure you've heard. Paul says, not that I have already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what's ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature, realized, being made perfect should take such a view of things. And Christian maturity, as we've talked about in this, the, the process of developing like the beatitudinal rhythms of the Christian life, means embracing perpetual progress. It means keeping our eyes forward. Some of you will remember uh, I had lunch with my friend Joe Spence about four weeks ago, and we had lunch over at Goldie's and we both hit the pickle bar pretty hard. And uh, Joe said, John, I want to talk to you about the Sermon on the Mount because you've got me reading the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is really challenging. He's really saying some stuff that's disrupting me. He said, do not resist an evil person and love your enemies. I've always heard that if you're going to get in a fight, you hit first and you hit hard. And he said, Jesus has got me rethinking a bunch of things. Joe was a person who is in process, who is striving for maturity. And in this passage and in the whole Sermon on the Mount, especially in those sections that say you've heard that it was said, but I say to you, 
Jesus, as the Son of God, is reinterpreting the law, and he's upping the game. He's upping the expectations. He's inviting the people of God to strive toward maturity. For Jesus, it's no longer enough to just not murder someone. In fact, Jesus re, he reverse engineers the mind and the heart of a murderer and traces back the evolution of that desire to its genesis, which he says is anger. Not only does Jesus say, you shall not murder, he also says, you shall not be angry. A church father named Origen said this, to give assent to sin is already a completed evil, even if someone doesn't actually commit the deed. And by this saying of Jesus, our Savior, hurling us away from the cause of sin, endeavors to cut off sin completely. For when this intention is not present in our souls, neither shall the action accompany it. It's like Jesus is spraying Roundup uh, on, on not only the leaves of those wicked weeds in our heart, but also its root. By not only focusing on the outward behavior of murder, but, but on its internal genesis and source of anger, Jesus is starting to like seriously meddle and put his finger on a deep wound in a sensitive place uh, within the human heart. Have you ever gotten to a place in conversation with someone where they asked you a question or they made an observation about you that was so incisive, like it hurt. Like it, it was so accurate, so piercing that it scared you. It made you want to get away from them. Maybe it made you angry. It made you want to like give them the cold shoulder for the while. And as Jesus dives deeper into the origins of our, our gross, visible sins to the world, looking in our own heart, he's getting into some scary territory. But the journey following Jesus, and in fact, the journey toward maturity is not only allowing the Spirit of God to do this kind of work in us, but actually inviting the loving scrutiny of Jesus to examine every part of our hearts, inviting the gentle and the healing gaze of Jesus into the abyss of our personality, the darkest and the deepest parts of us, and asking him to heal us. Uh, tons of you will know my pal Todd Craig, who abandoned us for the state of Florida. And Todd, uh, Todd said to me at one point that, that anger is a secondary emotion. It's a secondary emotion. Anger is a response to something else. Anger is like a check engine light. And so when you feel angry, it's, it's appropriate to ask yourself the question, why? Or about the origin even of that anger. Where is this anger coming from? This check engine light of anger, what can it tell me about the, the inner reality of my heart? When you feel angry, you should ask, why? And often at the root of our anger, there's, there's shame, or there's insecurity, or there's fear, or there are lies that we have come to regard, whether we might reject it rationally, there are lies that we might come to regard as truths. Anger is often like an alarm warning us that we're under threat, that something on the inside is under threat. When I lose my temper with my children, which happens way more often than I wish it did, when something doesn't go the way that I want it to for the church, um, you know, that, that anger is, is often like it's telling me something important that I need to pay attention to. 
when it happens with my children, it's often like an indicator that I don't feel like I, I have it together as a parent. Like, I'm not enough of a person to bear the weight of pressure as, as, a, as a pastor, as a parent, as a husband. Like, I'm feeling my own insufficiency. Or often I get angry when I feel out of control. I love these children. I, I saw them when they arrived in the world, and yet I recognize I can't control them, and that makes me feel scared, and that fear causes me to erupt with anger. If I were to just focus on what I, what I think is the cause of my anger, which is my children, I'm going to be derelict in my responsibilities. I'm going to be changing the subject when God really wants to talk to me about my own fears behind my anger. And if I instead talk with God about what my anger is telling me and not what my anger is on the superficial level coming from, my children, there's an opportunity for real progress. Anger left untended can grow and develop into hatred, into fear. And hatred and fear and that perpetual state of being in fight or flight mode can lead to violent thoughts. And violent thoughts left unattended and untended can lead toward violent action. And while in the case of our dear friends Joe and Beverly, it's natural to shake our heads in disbelief, like how could a person do this? We we might rush to accuse or to blame the wise. And those who are striving for maturity ought also to focus on ourselves and ask ourselves these questions. Some of you have heard me ask this before. What seed of sin currently exists within me that if given time and attention could sprout and mature into something destructive? Rather than just pointing out the failures and the flaws and the the gross negligence of other people, the wise look within and say, man, what am I capable of? Let me ask the question a different way. Rather than just a seed of sin... What fear or insecurity currently exists within me that, if left untended, could become something I kill to protect? What seed of fear? What seed of sin? What seed of insecurity am I so idolizing that I keep it from the healing gaze of Jesus Christ? Now, as I ask these questions, it, oh, it starts to hurt. And in fact, as I was writing this, I had in my, my imagination that image of, of Mel Gibson as William Wallace at the end of Braveheart. Do you know the scene where he's like laid out on the table and they're, they're gutting him? And he's in excruciating pain and he's, you know, just miserable. If you really ask yourself these questions, it starts to hurt. It's like, oh. But when it hurts, we're starting to get somewhere. We're getting to the subterranean parts of our heart, beneath the tectonic plates of our personhood and our personality, uncovering those lies that we took on really early in life that we regard as truths, those wounds within us that have festered, those fears that we just can't face, that shame that we fear if we name it, it would kill us. Sophie Stevens, who's a songwriter, wrote a song of all topics about a serial killer named John Wayne Gacy who, who did atrocious things in the city of Chicago a long time ago. And, John, and uh, Sufjan, at the very end of this song, says, In my best behavior, I'm really just like him. Look underneath the floorboards that is sec- for the secrets I have hid. 
Don Chaffer has a song called Secret Lives, and the chorus is just, everybody's got their secret lives. All of us do. We have, we have secrets that we've buried really deep within us, places that we can be healed, places that we could invite the Spirit of God to heal us. And if we really started to dig to admit our inner life, you might think, oh gosh, don't make me go there. Don't bring that up. Don't raise that topic. Don't ask that question. Get away from me. Emily, uh, my wife, was listening to a podcast on trauma recently, and the, the, the person on the podcast was talking about how trauma has a bit of a U-curve to it. That actually in going down to the, mentally and with, with safe people, going through the play-by-play of our trauma, hitting bottom and actually naming and rehearsing that trauma, it does the opposite of what we think it will do. It actually begins the process of healing, of in the company of safe people detailing the play-by-play. It does the opposite of what we fear. It enables us to heal especially in the presence of a trusted person, a person who has the infrastructure to handle it, a a pastor, a good counselor, a therapist. But I say most certainly in the presence of Christ. As you think about your own sin and brokenness and fears and insecurities and the, the subterranean parts of your personality, I want you to also see the face of Christ, to see the mercy in the eyes of Jesus, the implicit love of Jesus toward you, asking you, brother, sister, do you want to be well? There's this phrase I came across in reading the book, uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And uh, this quote comes from a theologian named Vegan Garoyan, who sounds like a character on Ghostbusters. Um, Great name, though. And he's describing the process of catechesis, of discipleship in the early church, the process of that could take two or three years of training people in the Christian way, of adopting a Christian habitus before a person would, at the end of two or three years or as long as it took, baptize them, welcome welcome them into the corporate worship of the church, feed them the Eucharist, Holy Communion, for the first time. And Garoyan said that, 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 that catechumens, people who are going through this process, had to undergo deep ontological repair. Ontological has to do with one's being. It says that in the process of becoming a Christian, each person needed to experience deep ontological repair. And this is a process of healing that requires uh, patience, as the wounds and the malformations on a person's soul and psyche had to be addressed and mended by the Spirit of God. And this is slow, slow work. Let me ask you, is it scary for you to look inside yourself? Is it scary for you uh, to reflect? Do you feel nervous in looking back on your own story? What's the topic that you most want to avoid? What's the thing that you most want me to never bring up in a pastoral conversation? And why is that? What experience do you least want to talk about? What are you most ashamed of? What are you the most afraid of? Where's that little corner in your heart that you guard so strictly that no one even knows it exists. Do you know 
Friend, that Jesus has the blueprints to your soul. Do you know that Jesus knew you when you were being formed in your mother's womb? Do you know that he knows even more deeply than you do your flaws and your brokenness, the moral injury that's happened to your soul, and he loves you anyway? Do you know that you are even, as Tim Keller said, like worse than you can ever imagine, more sinful than you can imagine, and yet more treasured and loved by God than you can imagine? Do you want Jesus to help you? Do you want him to heal you? And do you believe that he can? When we talk about our journey toward maturity in Christ, we aren't talking about merely advancing in biblical knowledge, or we're not talking about just exterior behavior management, though I think that our exterior behavior management matters. We're in large part talking about inviting the Spirit of God into the dark and secret life of our soul and allowing Him to make us well. And this work that can be done cooperatively with the Spirit of God. I love how David prayed in Psalm 139. Hear this invitation, this engagement of his will. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When Jesus took the conversation from murder to anger, he segued to this opportunity for deep inner healing, for deep ontological repair. But he didn't stop there with keeping this a private and a personal exercise. If you have your Bible, he shifted in verse 23 from this conversation about one's inner reality to a focus on one's relational network. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, leave your gift, go to your brother and fix it. I love the idea of like practicing holy impulsivity. And Jesus admonishes us to practice this kind of holy impulsivity, to be initiators in restoring broken relationships. Did you notice how he said, not... If you remember there that you wronged someone else, it's but, but <laughs> I'm screwing it up. Remember your brother has something against you. It's not you fixing a beef of someone else's screw up, but remembering that they've got grief with you. You initiate. When you're receiving Holy Communion, when you're worshiping the church, halt everything. Go to your brother. Go to your sister. Do what you can to fix it. In the first centuries of the church, uh, when the church was often a persecuted minority, their fellowship and their worship and especially their prayer life meant everything. You imagine being like a persecuted Christian in an overwhelmingly pagan and violent society. The church was sustained by this radical, uh, powerful prayer life. And they wanted to stop anything that was going to disrupt their prayer life, that was going to get in the way of their fellowship. And they thought broken relationship, above almost anything else, got in their way of their prayer life and their fellowship. Alan Kreider, in this book I keep referencing that you should all read, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, he said, when peace was absent, when there was injustice among members or relationships were broken, the church's worship was thought to be null and void. And then he quoted this third century document called the Didascalia, 
In the third century, uh, followers of Jesus said, the offering of God, which is, our, which is ours, is prayer and Eucharist, means thanksgiving. But if you continue in anger with your brother or he with you, your prayer shall not be heard, nor shall your Eucharist, your thanksgiving, be accepted. A person should pray carefully at all times, but God does not hear the prayers of those who bear anger and rebuke toward their brother. Even should you pray three times in an hour, it shall avail you nothing. So if there's disharmony within the church, if, if a relationship has been broken in the church, God's not going to hear your prayers. So what do you do? You reconcile. Listen to how the church dealt with this. May, you can, guys can vote on whether you think we should adopt this in Cornerstone. Kreider tells us that every week in their Sunday liturgy, their worship, at the bishop's urging, a deacon cried out, Is there anyone who maintains anger with his neighbor? It's like, does anybody object in the middle of a wedding? It gets really awkward if people speak up. But the deacon said, Is there anyone who maintains anger with his neighbor? And if the members had relationships that were seriously strained, the deacons, whom the bishop charged to find out about conflict and misbehavior, urged the aggrieved parties to approach the bishop. And if the party's grievances were not deep-seated, the, the bishop was able to settle a dispute on the spot. But if the people's conflicts were intractable, couldn't be fixed, a process of hearings ensued. And if a person was, was in the wrong and they were digging in their heels, they could even be excommunicated from the church. Now, the word excommunicated has tons of baggage, but, but it was for the purpose of reconciliation. It was not excommunicated and then we're done with you. No, the bishop would walk with that person through a process of healing, almost re-entering a kind of catechesis for the purpose of reconciliation. And this peacemaking process, which happened in the middle of the worship gathering, was itself a kind of evangelism. Because the world, the Roman Empire in particular, full of enemies and rival groups, saw a people working out their conflict systematically in adherence to the teachings of Jesus. The goal was complete restoration for the sake of the individual, for the sake of their relationship, for the preservation of peace, and especially to remove any hindrances to prayer in the church. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and I would say to you, if you're watching this live stream right now, and in your home right now, you've been fighting and you've been unwell, get off the live stream right now, humble yourselves to each other, own your failures and repent right now. Just get off. I would love to see like 10 of you get off the live stream right now. When we gather together and worship on Sunday mornings, before we receive communion, before we pray as a church, if you know you're at conflict with somebody else, you have my permission, hop over pews, do what you must and say, brother, sister, we need to talk. Make it right. Jesus says take dramatic action to fix it. Somebody asked me a couple of weeks ago, uh, they were, they're not a part of our church, not even Tolson's. They said, what's the vision of your church? And I gave them this kind of rewritten version of our mission statement. And I said, you know what? We're trying to cultivate a community of Sermon on the Mount Christians. Trying to cultivate a community of Sermon on the Mount Christians. In the spirit of the text today, I think we could say it's people who are being repaired by the Spirit. I think it's people who are actively repenting 
of, of their own sin and the harm that they cause relationally with other people. It's people who are striving to be reconciled, even when it's awkward. Christians should be in the middle of awkward situations almost constantly because of this peacemaking impulse that was given to us by Jesus. And we should be people who strive to practice restoration to full relationships uh, to the best of our ability. In the New Testament, it says, strive to live at peace with all people. Do your part as far as it depends on you to live at peace with all people. And sadly, we know that there are times where we can't be fully reconciled and restored. But, but as far as it depends on us, in adhering and obeying and striving to live and be shaped and discern on the map Christians, we want to be people who, with God's help, refuse to hate, who refuse to, to wish ill on somebody else. We're people who are resolute in saying, with the Spirit's help, I'm going to get to a place where I can pray for God to bless this person that I'm inclined temperamentally to hate or to wish something bad upon. As people who are striving to be shaped by the gospel, to be Sermon on the Mount Christians, we invite the Spirit of God to offer us this deep ontological repair. We repent when we're wrong. We confess it. Rather than keeping it a secret, the things that are in secret, we, we proclaim in the daylight. Confess your sins to each other. Confess your fears and your insecurities to each other and pray for each other. Why? It's the U-shaped curve so that you can be healed. We strive for reconciliation. We strive for full restoration. Why? Because it's in the DNA of God. It's what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has taken the initiative toward us. Even though he was the offended party, Jesus took the, initi the, the initiative in approaching us in relationship and offering us forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, bearing upon his own body the weight and the responsibility of sin. Uh, God gave him who had no sin and let him be regarded as sin for us so that we might in him become the righteousness of God. So what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This comes from Titus chapter 3. At one time, we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of the great things, the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Christ our Savior. Because of his love, because of his kindness toward us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. He's given us this ministry of reconciliation, being reconciled to one another. We have, in these moments, an opportunity to reflect on these questions. What seed of sin currently exists within me that if unattended, if not healed by the Spirit of God, could grow and mature into something destructive? And what fear or insecurity exists within me if untended could become something I'd kill to protect? 
in the space where you're staring at your phone or an iPad or a television screen, computer, sitting in your home in your pajamas right now, would you just make your home um, a place where the Spirit's invited to dwell? In fact, would you just even now just, just close your eyes, you can listen to my voice, and in your own way, aloud, I'm not going to hear you, just pray, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. David said in Psalm 19, who can discern their own errors? And just pray with David in Psalm 139, Lord, search me, know me, test me. Reveal the sin in me that if untended could become something destructive. Lord, would you reveal the insecurity or the fear or the pain point in me that you want to heal? My prayer is, church, that your home today and in the coming weeks would be a place of healing where you invite the Lord Jesus to do this deep ontological repair within you. God, give us the courage to start awkward conversations, to go first in repenting, to go first in admitting our wrong, to go first in navigating the awkwardness of reconciliation and restoration. And give us a special dispensation of your grace to live in the way of peace with other people. Would you redeem this unique wilderness time uh, to help us to grow in maturity, to grow in perseverance? We want to, to suck the marrow out of this experience and get every good thing we can, so help us, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, this is, a, this is the time in our service where typically we would share communion. And uh, I, I was trying to come up with some way that we could get crackers and juice to everybody and we can't make it happen today. But friends, I want you to remember that the body of Christ was given for you. And that the blood of Christ was shed for you. John tells us he is the atoning sacrifice not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He gave his body and his blood for you and for your family and for your friends, for the people with whom you're in conflict, the people who make you so angry. The person that you hate the most is a recipient of the love of God and Jesus Christ. And may we who've received this kindness and this love and this mercy from him Extend this kindness and this mercy to others.